Welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast, where nothing is a cure for everything. My name is Dr. Ann Metz. I'm your host. I'm a professor, researcher, and most importantly, a psychedelic therapist. Join me on a journey of discovery as we explore how psychedelics make the leap from small-scale research studies to mass-market mental health solutions. Hello, and welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Metz. For a final episode of season one, we are lucky to have an incredible guest with us today. Dr. Rachel Harris is the author of Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground, and Listening to Ayahuasca. As a psychologist who's been in private practice for 40 years, she spent 10 years in an academic research department, where she published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals and received a National Institute of Health New Investigators Award. Rachel splits her time between an island in Maine and the San Francisco Bay Area. Swimming in the Sacred, her new book, offers a revelatory look into the past half-century of psychedelic use via in-depth interviews that Harris conducted with women elders who have worked underground, guiding sacred entheogenic journeys to cultivate insight, healing, and spiritual development. Swimming in the Sacred has basically been the book for 2023 for all of the women I know who are interested in psychedelics. And I think the reason why this is the case will soon be readily apparent. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. Well, I recognize that we're likely going to be switching back and forth between talking about psychedelic use for spiritual purposes, which I think is really the topic of your book, and psychedelic use for addressing mental health concerns. I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about how you distinguish between the ceremonial work of the women you interviewed and maybe what's happening right now with psychedelic research. That's that's an interesting place to start. You know, when I started interviewing these women, I thought they were therapists, and I was very quickly (laughs) corrected. They are not therapists. They're like priestesses. They're like spiritual warriors. And they're not interested in diagnoses and symptom reduction. I mean, they're certainly compassionate about suffering, Mm. but they're not, their framework is not the DSM-5, that they would have no clue. And they're interested in transformation and how you live your life. And that's very different from what has to happen to do research. So what I'd like to say, just I'll start with just a little gripe, (laughs) is when I was trained in research, I was taught that when you start a project, you find the experts in that area and you interview them to help guide you in how you design the research studies and the questionnaires and and just the context in which you're working. Well, I think that's a really important point and probably yes, but here's here's my punchline. Okay, that great. Did happen. Mm. That did not happen. The the academic study teams did not and they could have, they could have found these women. They could have found underground guides to talk to. And and they could have, with discretion, brought brought them in to speak to the research teams. They did not do that. And it's made a difference. That lack of information 
And I have to say, these women I interviewed, they've been working with these medicines for 30, 40 years. One of them goes back to the early 60s, so let me think, that's 60 years. So who knows more about these medicines in the Western culture than some of these underground guides? Mm. And so now we have researchers beginning their work. Some of them have had a few experiences. Well, I think you bring up a really interesting point, and the the way you described going about research, I think, is really situated within a qualitative tradition. And I no, think so no, much- it's also true for quantitative because it helps it helps the research decide what what scales to use, what's important here. These d- decisions are made in the beginning of designing a research study about what's the most important thing to look at, what are the variables we're focusing on. So speaking to experts who have the the in vivo experience helps determine what are we looking at. Mm. For those who might be unfamiliar with the concept, can you talk a little bit about the idea of the psychedelic underground and its historical context? Oh, well, that, that goes back to Greece, I think, the historical context. These medicines have been used in, in different cultures for thousands of years. So, you know, and in Greece, it was Eleusis, and, and they were used as a preparation for dying. And it was secret ceremonies, and, and there were priestesses who knew how to mix the elixir. It was a combination of wine and different herbs and psychotropic plants. So the, the question that I challenge our Western culture with <clears throat> when I do interviews is, how are we going to hold these medicines? They've been held in sacred ways, in rituals and ceremonies in indigenous cultures for thousands of years. How are we in the modern world going to hold them? Mm-hmm. So, so far, we're holding them in a medical context, which is yielding incredible results in the research. It's very exciting. I mean, everybody's excited about the data. We're holding them in commercial for-profit startups, which people have different feelings about. <laughs> and, and then there's the underground way of holding them. And I, I'm not sure, you know, that because as they become more legal, there'll be a clinical way, more of a clinical therapeutic way to hold them. That's not necessarily research related. Mm. But th- this is, and it's fine to have more than one way to hold these medicines. But the, the challenge for our culture is to be conscious about how we hold these medicines and to be sensitive to how they've been held traditionally for centuries. Mm. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about my own graduate training and the way that we teach people to become therapists. And there's very little talk of the sacred. And I think you just bring up a really important point that many of us are, you know, who will be going and doing this work are sort of ill-equipped in certain ways around the language of the sacred and the mystical. Right, right. Well, you know, more chaplains are getting involved. There's a movement like it. Oh, what's the, the school... Oh no, this is terrible. In New Mexico, in Naropa, in Colorado, the uh, the Naropa. Nero- thank you. Oh, sorry, Naropa. So the there's a group of chaplains beginning to do work, and they're they're much better at talking about mystical experiences, and they're much more nuanced. And they're talking about there are many more mystic types of mystical experiences 
than the unitive one that's been studied so far. So they have a much more sophisticated approach to mystical experience and, and excited about their involvement in working with people and in research as well to expand what so far Hopkins has kind of delineated as a mystical experience. Sure. And it's a mystical experience that's measured by a, you know, indirect yes. scale that, you know, is totally self-report. Right. Yeah. Right. So I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about your motivation for the book. You've obviously had a successful private practice for 40 years. I guess I've just been curious about what inspired you to do a massive years-long qualitative research study on underground guides where you could very easily just keep, you know, working with clients. Yeah, I had already retired. Mm, okay. When I, when I couldn't remember who had who had siblings or who whose parents did what, I decided it was time to I was too old to do private practice and I had to retire because I didn't want to depend on notes. I always mm. remembered everything and when I couldn't remember everything I retired. So that so I had already been retired. But w- what happened for me is I was led from an ayahuasca study I did and uh, that was published in 2012. So that took three or four years to do. So, you know, we're going back to 2007, 2008, when I began collecting data for that study. That led to the book, Listening to Ayahuasca. And then the ayahuasca book put me in contact with some of the underground guys. I mean, that was not my intention, and it just happened. And they were wanting to talk to me more. And they had had a vow of silence for all these years. And I think it's because of that book that they, and knowing me a little bit, they were willing to open up for the first time and talk, be interviewed and talk openly about their underground work. They had a very strict vow of silence. So I, so it sort of came out organically. One thing led to another. And, and I was free in the sense that I wasn't tied to a practice and that I had retired. And the, and the underground guys, I, you know, we're, we're in similar ages. They're all certainly over 60, many over 70. I had been in many of the same places they were during the 60s. Mm. I could have studied with some of the same people they studied with. I didn't have it in me. These are different kind of people. I mean, it's not just that I chose to graduate school, but these are fearless women. They are afraid of nothing. Mm. I, on the other hand, <laughs> I'm not afraid of nothing. I have plenty of fears. So they're a unique, a unique, uniquely prepared for, for doing this work that, uh, that is really beyond what I could have even imagined. I think that really comes through in the stories about how these women manage the incredible risk of the work that they've done and the fearlessness for sort of diving into the complexity of the human experience Thank you. time and time again. Yes, yes. I would love to just talk to you a little bit more about your decision, some of the decisions you made with research. Obviously, what prompted you to make it a qualitative research study versus doing something quantitative? Oh, these women would have never filled out questionnaires. <laughs> they would have never <laughs> filled out scales. Okay, that well, that's was, an that easy enough one. Insulting. I mean, <laughs> you know, the work they do is so much more nuanced and subtle. It it would not have been. They would never have agreed to that, and I would. I just wouldn't insult them that way. <laughs> 
do you think it's a little reductive to be asking participants in these psychedelic studies with scales? You know, no, that's really different. They're signing up for a research study. Okay. We know we need that data. That's very different. These women needed more of a voice. They wanted to have more of a voice, but they didn't want to risk incarceration. Sure. A serious business. So that's a difficult, that's difficult to have a bigger voice and not, not get in trouble. So, you know, I was able to interview them and convey their voice more publicly than they can. And you did a beautiful job with that as well, too. I mean, the fact that you didn't record or transcribe any of the interviews was just a testament. You know, I think obviously your clinical memory, still being able to kind of do that, but also just, you know, the the power of of narrative and description and great qualitative research. Yes, and their their work is not separate from their lives. I mean, this is what their life has been all about. Yes, they had men most of them had day jobs in different kinds. I mean, some corporate, some, you know, different kinds. Mm. But this was their real life. And so it was inseparable from who they were as a person. And and as I was interviewing them, I began to ask more and more about their childhood spiritual experiences. I began to realize, oh, this is, this is, you know, they didn't come to this out of nothing. They had, they had already had some pretty interesting early experiences. Absolutely. It sounded like, it seems like they've been on a, they've been on a lifelong path. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I am also really curious about the role of gender. Have you thought at all about how your study might have been different if you had included male underground guides? Yes, it would. It definitely would have been different because I did interview a couple of the guides. And I felt, well, it was my decision, basic, in, in the selection criteria. And here are my reasons. One is I felt the women were more connected to the plant spirits. They had more intimate relationships with the medicines than the men did. And you, you could say, well, women tend to have more intimate relationships, more, they're more relational. And I, and I could be criticized for that prejudice, but I felt that they, were, that they had more intimate relationships with the medicines themselves. One of the men I interviewed who'd been working 40 years, he said, here's the way he put it, the women don't get in between the client and the medicine as much as the men do. What he means is they don't interfere with what's happening. He said, you can stop a process just by handing someone a box of Kleenex. You know, they can be sniveling. And, and if you hand them a box of Kleenex, it interrupts what, what their process is. That was a very sensitive observation. And I, and I think he was right. And he said, the other thing he said that was interesting that I never thought of, he said, women know about suffering because they've lived with their menstrual cycles all their lives. Mm. And it's just, I thought, oh, I, I never thought of that. And mm. God knows I've suffered with, you know, menstrual cycles in my youth. So it was just a very interesting perspective. But the other bottom line is, I'd listened to men for 50 years. It was enough already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that answer. I mean, both of those That's, answers, I, mean, I there's think, the are truth. <laughs> well, I, I, I would be curious about you know, thinking about the future and what we're looking at as psychedelics come on board, either through decriminalization or through medical approval. 
How do you anticipate the gender is going to function going forward in this? Oh, I have no clue. I mean, the one the one thing we do know in therapy is that the more similarities, the more simpatico between the client and therapist, the better the outcome. I mean, it tend it leads to therapeutic alliance and trust and uh, you know empathy. So I think, and and there's a push to to you know, to have LGBTQ therapists work with that community and people of color working with that community. And so I think the better match between therapist and client is what's most important. Mm. Yeah, that certainly seems to, you know, account for the outcomes when we're talking about traditional psych- psychotherapies. Yeah, and quality in a, in of a therapeutic that relationship. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But now see, that's very, that's again, me speaking as a therapist, that's very different from the the priestesses at Eleusis, who were all women, of course. Sure, very. It's a different. It's a different context. It's a different way of holding the medicines. And I think that is again, you know, like I, where we've sort of started this conversation is that we're kind of talking about sort of two different things. One one thing that you know has a long historical tradition, and then this new thing that's emerging that really doesn't have a precedent. You know, right. right. And I think, I think, um, I hope, I don't know this, but I hope the chaplains, when they talk about integration, they will be the way they were with reports of mystical or spiritual or even just unusual experiences will be different than a therapist does. And I think the therapists need to learn from the chaplains and, mm. and vice versa. And so I'm very excited about the that profession having a entering into the system and having a bigger voice. I'm hopeful. Yeah. I think that that they're going to have a wonderful perspective and, you know, I think that, you know, my own, in my own work that I've, that I've done with psychedelics, you know, I've had some training from an underground guide and I've had some training through maps and through fluence and some of the more traditional routes. Good for you. And it's been, you know, and I have to, you know, I, you know, I didn't go all the way through with the underground training, but it was a really different experience. Whereas the maps training and the fluence training, they did a great job talking to you about what to do, but maybe said less about how to be. Whereas the underground training was very much about doing your own work and recognizing where you had sort of biases around what you believed in and what you thought existed in the world. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. So it was, it was a really sort of, it's been nice, I think, to have both of those perspectives. And I just, I hope that kind of as we go forward, that those two experiences can speak to one another and training programs can, can take a bit from the underground. And well, I, I hope more therapists make the effort that you made to find people who can teach from their own experience. I, I feel like I just got really, really lucky. It was one of those things where I stumbled across person and just emailed her and asked if I could do an apprenticeship. And she was like, sure. Wow, that's great. Well, therapists ask me how to do that, and there's no one way. But it's sort of like when the student is ready, the teacher appears, you know, it's that sort of thing. You're, this is a great story, an example of that. Yeah, I feel like it was really, it came in in a great moment and it was a really nice foundation and one that I kind of increasingly appreciate as I do more of the work and I start to understand more in the world. But I would love to talk a little bit about 
you know, about some of the challenges and the risks that are inherent and the stories that these women have have had and the things that they've had. I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about the challenges these women faced and how they've persevered and had careers doing this work and lives doing this work. You know, just just to kind of continue that example of a, an apprenticeship, one woman told me this story, how she she was working with a client and the client requested a certain combination of entheogen. And so the women, the guide, worked with those entheogens as the, as the client wanted. Am I clear? Mm-hmm. And then when the people she was training with understood what she did, they said to her, you have never yourself experienced that combination, and yet you served it. And you, that, that's breaking a rule. Mm. And they basically forbid her from serving any medicines, working with anybody for a full year. Now that tells you how serious that apprenticeship was, how serious this guide learning was, that she went along with that. She mm-hmm. had her wings clipped for a year. And how some of these rules are taken, are, are, are very serious, that you don't work with someone and someone's experience that you have not had yourself. So a lot of the psychedelic therapists are promising or advertising, I do psychedelic integration, but they may not have ever even had that medicine that the client is seeking help integrating. And, you know, there's just an old saying at Esalen in the late 60s, which is, you know, my source, my foundation. You, 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 can't, you, you can't take someone where you haven't been. Mm. So there's a real emphasis on doing your own work and, and learning from your own experience. And I think, you know, we sort of get ahead of ourselves sometimes. And, and, and you know, I'm hoping that therapists will, will have enough humility to learn more before, be, you know, well, I have a license, I can do whatever. Well, not exactly. <laughs> mm. so, so that they find people they can learn from. I think and you bring and experiences they can learn from. I would love to talk to you about the experiences that 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 you learn from because I think I've certainly have heard Rick, Rick Doblin talk and other people who are really important figures in this movement. And you know, their advice always is is to have your own experiences, to seek out experiences. And I think that's really great advice. But I also recognize, you know. For me to say that or what it would mean for me to be engaged or, or to to use a psychedelic, to use an illegal substance, yeah. I'm, you know, a white woman with a PhD. The chance that the war on drugs is going to come down hard on me is really no. minimal. And I just feel so so many mixed feelings about that advice. I'd be curious about how you've navigated that. I know. Not well. I can tell you not well. Because basically my message is Get as much experience as you can with all the entheogens at all dosages. Well, that's recommending illegal behavior. I mean, I, you know, I, it's crazy. But say, you know, if I have a, an ayahuasca, I go to an ayahuasca ceremony with an indigenous shaman, and I have trouble integrating it, could I come to you as a therapist? Hmm. Probably not, no. No. <laughs> no, no, it has to be someone who's been there, 
who understands this is a whole other world, you know, a whole other framework. So, and someone can do a one-week or two-week ketamine training and say, I'm a psychedelic therapist. So I tell people, you know, you when you're looking for a therapist, people used to call me when I was in private practice and say, what technique do you use? And I would tell them, that's the wrong question. <laughs> you should ask me, have I ever had my own therapy? Mm-hmm. You have a right to ask me that. Was it successful? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many different therapists have I worked with? You know, it's really more personal question. And so if you're going to work with a guide, you can ask them, what, what has your experience been? What's your training? What, who have you, what situations have you worked with? And I understand you're asking them possibly about illegal behavior, but there are ways of answering. Mm. You know, I did, I was on a panel and, you know, it was an hour's conversation, and we all were doing our best. <clears throat> and then at the very end, this one guy who, he was the only psychiatrist on the panel, and he really hadn't said much. And at the, toward the very end, he said, I'm with my third therapist now, and it's really been helpful. <laughs> it's helping me integrate my, my medicine experiences. And I thought, this is the most important statement that's been made in this whole hour. So I chimed in, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we have to represent, we have to say, you know, I'm, I work with a Jungian therapist now who, who is somewhat limited because she doesn't have the psychedelic experience, but she's been trained by a Hawaiian shaman. So she knows about altered states and shamanic processes that happen. And so it's, it's very, and of course, she's a Jungian, so... We work, she works beautifully with dreams and images and visions. And so, you know, I'm doing what I'm recommending. And it's quite something to work with a therapist and also go to ceremony. Mm. And, and that's really what I recommend if to be a psychedelic therapist, to have that combination of both processes going on. And that's really different than what we're talking about when we talk about psychedelic therapy, where the sort of sitter and the integration therapist are one and the same. You know, that's a new system. That was never, that was, you know, the, the, the women that I interviewed who are guides and sitters, they don't do therapy. Mm. Even when they're therapists, which I thought was amazing. They keep it separate. Yeah. And only one or two were therapists, the licensed, you know. So is that sort of one of the areas in which you think might be evidence? An example of something that might be a little bit different had the folks at Hopkins interviewed some of these some of these priestesses before they designed their research studies? Well, you know, they they might have they might have paid attention to that. Yeah. And 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 just because of money, they're beginning to say, well, we don't really need therapists sitting in six, eight hour sessions, you know, Mm -hmm. we could, we could have guides doing that and then therapists for the prep and, and, and integration. But here's, here's the best example I can give. So when I did my original research study on ayahuasca that I referenced, and I can send you the study, it was published in the journal of psychoactive drugs in 2012 is, did I already say this? This is terrible because I did an interview right before you. One of the one of the underground guides told me to ask, "Do you have an ongoing relationship with this spirit of ayahuasca?" 
You have not. Hmm. Now, what's really funny about this is I was doing this research because the spirit of ayahuasca had talked to me in a ceremony and told me to do the research, but it never occurred to me to ask other people. (laughs) My criteria to be in the study for subjects was one ayahuasca session in North America. That's a real minimal criteria. I, I interviewed 81 people. Three quarters of them had an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. Mm. Now, this is outside of the Western reality, cosmology. This is not normal. Mm. Yes, no one has a relationship with their SSRI. No. And then, of course, I asked, and how do you communicate? Well, in dreams, hypnagogic states, and meditation. I can just be quiet and ask for advice and support during the day. I mean, people had many different ways of sort of entering a more quiet state and communicating. And they had great trust in in what they would receive. So, you know, this is a total, if, if the researchers had asked the more experienced people, they would have maybe opened up to something like that. Mm. What they, because they didn't ask that question, Hopkins recently in the last three to five years, I forget the publication when it came out, maybe 21, they asked about, did you, it, this is internet research, so they had a thousand subjects or more. Did you encounter an entity? And then they divided by what was the drug you were on. Well, encountering an entity, this is interesting. But it's not the same question at all, and it's not as relevant a question. And it ignores, you know, all the indigenous use with these medicines, because they just didn't know. They didn't talk to those people. Mm. So encounter an entity is, is a totally different question than do you have an ongoing relationship with a plant spirit? And to really capture what that means, is the best book is Jeremy Narby's called Plant Teachers, mm. where he's basically interviewing an indigenous shaman. And the shaman is is talking about the relationship with the plant spirit. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a small book that's kind of interviews. I'll, I'll send you the references so you have it. I would love that. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. And while I'm at it, the other, and I'll send you my original research on ayahuasca. And the other thing I recommend is The Secret Chief. Have you read that? No, but I've heard you mention that on a couple of other podcasts yeah, that you've yeah. done. And it's, it's like a pretty wonderful... that up and you can get it free on through math. Okay. Yeah. Well, since we're sort of at this moment where we're talking about, you know, maps and Hopkins, I'd be curious about what you think the future is going to look like. I mean, obviously, Oregon now has licensed adult facilitated experiences and you tra- you train the criteria for training is a high school education yes i <laughs> i have some <laughs> thoughts about that one you wasted <laughs> yeah i actually met with interviewed dr elizabeth nielsen who runs fluence a couple of a couple yeah. of weeks ago and she was sort of saying well that's the basic but we require a lot more and you know i think it's great that they do but it's obviously not 
a requirement from the state that the individual. And, and this is part of this is part of it's one answer to the question: How do we hold these medicines? Mm. So you yeah. know, and we're all over the place. This is sure. Like, this is an extreme example, I think. Yeah, I think that is a great way or a great example of how it's not being held particularly sacredly, you know, if it requires, you know, 160 hours of training. It's enough to drive you crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is our Western culture. You know, I mean, and I just, you know, I don't want to be, obviously, I have an agenda with this as somebody who works in, you know, as a faculty member, but, you know. To, to do anything where you're talking to someone or doing an assessment, like you need to have three years of graduate school at the minimum. And somehow, you know, somebody who has had a training program and 50 hours of a practicum is suddenly in a place where they're going to know how to respond if somebody, you know, encounters some pretty traumatizing memories or some material that's really threatening. And it's like, how would you be equipped to know how to handle it? Yeah. One of the women I interviewed underground, and she happens to have a master's degree in psychology. She talked about a session she was doing underground, and she made the clinical decision that she had to take this client to the ER. Mm. That's a big clinical decision because she's basically outing herself, doing illegal work. And she was just lucky that she hit an ER doctor who was simpatico and took care of the client and did not report her. Mm. But it gets very serious very quickly. Yeah, but, absolutely. I mean, that story when, when yeah was a terrifying one. I was just kind of I, imagining. I find it terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, what's kind of kept me to the straight and narrow of ketamine is just recognizing what a risk it is to my license to sort of be involved in anything that's even remotely illegal. And I just, the fact that these women have done it their whole career and they've been so fearless about it and is just so admirable. I'm a chicken like you are. I have to say one of my favorite chapters in your book was the one, what the hell is integration anyway? I you'd go there, of course. (laughs) Uh, Just because it really is one of those, you know, I think that the, the, the chapter title really captures what is challenging about that. And, you know, training on how to do integration is so vague and general and there aren't any good clinical models. I just would be curious what you think about how we learn to do integration. You know, I, 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 clinically, I can say one of the most important things therapists need to learn to do is recognize when a client shifts state, a state of consciousness. And when someone's talking about their experience, and if they've had a mystical experience, even just reporting it, they will likely shift consciousness. They'll, they'll get sort of a dreamy, <laughs> Or it's an altered state, or you can, as the therapist, you can feel there's a shift happening, or you can see it in their face. And therapists need to recognize that and keep, and don't mess with it. Don't try and concretize it. Don't try and push the client to put it into words. Well, what do you mean by that? What did that mean to you? Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? No, it's really about knowing when to keep out of it and keep your mouth shut. 
there's a an interview I heard with Bessel van der Kolk, and he says, you know, therapists can want to show off how smart they are, and sometimes they should just keep their mouths shut. <laughs> That's his quote. This is one of the times the therapist should keep their mouth shut. And that's possibly one of the most important things for therapists to be able to recognize and separate mm. uh, when there's a shift in consciousness and, and, and just say supportive things and keep out of it. What the, what the underground women look for is transformation in the person's life, how they relate to their life. What they do, I mean, one, here's the quote from one of them here. I, I always try and quote this one directly. Here we go. You get a mystical experience, but so what? This is from one of the women. Mm. You have to learn how to work with energy. And that's, how do you work with what's happening in your life, the energy of what's happening in your life? That's a much bigger question than symptom reduction or... Sure, sure. Yeah. How is what you're doing today different than what you were doing the day before as a result of it? And I think that. Now, that's, you know, you just concretized it a little bit. Nice, because it makes it more practical. But it also, you also miss some pieces because we mm. work with energy. We don't, it's not good to try and define that. That's, mm. that's a sense, it's intentionally vague. And and it means much more than what's how's your behavior different today from yesterday. Sure. Yeah. Some of it is is here's another way of saying it, which is also big. I watch for a shift in how the person embraces being alive. <laughs> that's that's really pretty big. That yeah. is. I mean, yeah. gosh. So, so transformation is very big. And so the women are looking for that. And, if, and what they have said to me is if they think someone is just coming in repeatedly for the experience and they're not really changing anything in their life, their life is not getting bigger, more, more. Well, here's a, if, if, if they're not contributing more in, in the world, not, not being called, they will stop seeing them. Mm. So here's, here's what I mean by bigger. <clears throat> this is the eldest of the elders. We are responsible for our intentions and our choices, responsible to ourselves and to humanity. So when someone has a big spiritual experience, whatever kind of mystical experience it is, what does that call them to do with their life, their mm -hmm. way of being in the world, of what they have to contribute and offer? What do they feel inspired to do? And it's not an inflated, well, I've had this experience and now I'm going to save the world or I'm going to start offering ceremonies, you know, God forbid. But what am I called to do with whatever I have inside me, hmm. what I've experienced? So evidently, I was called to do what turned out to be like a second dissertation, which had I thought about it that way at the beginning, I never would have done it. Well, it sounds like not only was a second, it sounds like you did a second and a third dissertation. So we're, you know, we, how do we respond to what we're called and inspired to do? Well, I, I you know, I just want to say kind of on a personal level, like what a beautiful gift you've given a, a, another set of generations of therapists for thing, for us to think about, for us to know about, to have these 
stories and this incredible wisdom written down. So it's a resource for us going forward. I just think oh, it's the women would be thrilled to hear you say that. I can yeah, I think it's a great example of what you were just describing as truly integrating your experiences that you've had. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm getting a little teary-eyed here. I'm just very, you know, it's moving thinking about that and you know, what I've learned from the book and what I've learned from the women that you have interviewed. I'm just so glad that that, you know, that you took the time to do it. Well, you know, me too. I was changed by my experience of being with them and talking with them and, and going back. It's not like I did one interview. I went back and back and called them. And mm. yeah, I was, they really changed me just in the conversations. I have no doubt. I mean, I think that that what I mean, one of my questions, and it seems kind of like a trivial question to ask is how is your life different because of this oh, research? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's here's <laughs> this is uh, this is when I quote all the oh, here it is. One of the women, this is her favorite. No one skips dismemberment. So <laughs> It's true. I mean, it's, you know, how do we work with things that are difficult? This is a different woman, but you, you can see that the women, these two don't know each other, but they're speaking to the same issue. There's, you know, the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism talk about suffering. How, how do we deal with w what is inevitable in everybody's life is some kind of suffering? And mm -hmm. how do we deal with that and relate to it? And so I think that's, just even asking that question is a big part of what I learned from these women. Hmm. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit. I think, um, you know, I read Irving Yalom's The Gift of Therapy when I was in grad school. Yeah. And one of the most meaningful things he says, this is a chapter that says, talk to your clients about death. And, and, and I, you know, I don't know why I'm pulling, but it, what you just said there is just reminded me of that, that no, it's this I, very human experience. I know why you're referencing him. I do, because I think he's the closest of academic professional therapists who talks about these realms. Mm. And, and I mean, he calls it existential psychotherapy, but and these women call it, you know, sacred journeys, but it's the same realm. And I, I think you're exactly right. And and he's writes beautifully about his use of himself. He he says he he reveals something personal about himself in the moment in every session. Mm. That's you have to be very careful with new therapists how they interpret that. But Absolutely. for a seasoned therapist, it's it's about use of self. Yes. Yeah, and that the experience of, of of listening to someone, just as you've described, this is you know you're you're as changed by yeah. hearing what those women had to say as I'm sure they were by sharing their story. It's just this beautiful co-created experience. Well, I'm I'm very grateful for having had the opportunity, and and I I think it's still here's the phrase that one of them uses: it's still working me. It's still working inside me, and it's been a couple of years since since I finished the interviews. Wow. Yeah. And it's still working inside of you. And it's still working inside, yeah. Well, as we, we wrap up here, I'd be curious if there's anything else that you'd like to share about your work or the future of psychedelics. 
or maybe even import uh, the importance of amplifying women's voices in this space. There's a, there's always that for sure, but I guess what I want to say is, you know, if someone says, "Well, I want to go see a therapist," there's all kinds of different therapists, right? It's like a smorgasbord of therapists. So you have to you have to find, you know, in your own process who who fits for you, and I think it's going to be the same thing with entheogenic opportunities. There's going to be a whole array of different situations that you can choose. And so, you know, I just really say to people, take your time and be careful. And even now, even while it's still illegal, there's still lots of choices to be made. And and that's the most hopeful I can be about the future of psychedelics that there'll be lots of different ways to use them and to just encourage people to take your time. Mm. Oh, well, Rachel, thank you so much for speaking with me today. This has just been an incredibly meaningful conversation for me, and I have gotten so much out of your book, and I know so many of my friends have as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to to write it. It's been really important. This was The Psychedelic Skeptic with Ann Metz. 